You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. About a year ago, I attended a meeting with approximately 60 other professionals. The purpose of this meeting was to attempt to make connections and increase the awareness of the commonalities between the people in the group. The group makeup was mostly female and white, with a small but significant amount of POCI folk, African-Americans, Hmong, and Latino. One African-American male spoke about his experience of growing up black in the American South. The next speaker, a white woman, attempted to connect and expand on something that the man was talking about when she commented on how she too understood what it was like to be poor and from the South. The man waited until she was done speaking, asked for the microphone again, and commented, I never said I was poor. I told you I was black. The woman, and multiple others, attempting to make the situation right, apologizing, offering context, asking to give the white person the benefit of the doubt. I sat watching the conversation unfold. I went through an intense and varied emotional experience. Righteous anger. Did she really just say that? Defeat. Why do we even try? We are never going to get this right. Never fully understand one another. Sadness. What is the point of this? Why can't we think before we speak and stop hurting each other? Judgmental. This is how you show up as your best self at a professional meeting, confusing race and class? While all the thoughts and emotions I was having were valid, they were not helping me at all or furthering the conversation. I felt stymied by the conflict. I came to First Universalist at a time when I needed church for answers and connection around the difficult topics that seemed to be suffocating my world. Issues of anti-blackness and racism, sexism, ableism, and homophobia. I joined a Soul Matters circle and allowed myself to yield into a new way of listening, of having intentional and difficult conversations. I attended a first 100 days circle um, after the election of Trump. I sat in that circle every other Tuesday and witnessed my own and the struggle of others to be present in the face of hopelessness, fear, and the unknown. The members did not all see the world the same way, and yet the circle experience taught me to listen with my only intention being that of curiosity. I experienced similar emotions in both of these meetings, and yet in my Soul Matters group, I was able to experience listening in a way that allowed me to stay connected and curious even within my own emotions and biases. To challenge myself to stay present in this moment with this group of people and not become disheartened, but thankful and appreciative of our shared struggle. Come, let us worship. 
A couple of years back, Hannah Gadsby, a comedian who'd made quite a name for herself doing stand-up around her stories of coming out, announced that she had decided to quit comedy. A seemingly little trifle of a Netflix comedy special launched the career of Hannah Gadsby. The irony was not lost on her. She was delivering her swan song to comedy and in so doing became one of the most watched comedians in Netflix history. If you haven't seen it, watch it. It's brilliant and a devastating commentary on how we tell our stories and the price we pay. In the first part of her special, which is called Nanette, Gatsby talks about being a lesbian comedian and the way she has built a very successful career on lesbian content, as she puts it, and self-deprecating humor. She invites us to chuckle along about the way she looks, to snicker at the small town in Tasmania where she grew up, and to enjoy a full belly laugh at her life as an introvert who is not very good at gay. A couple of stories really hit home at the beginning of her routine. One is a story about having a nice little conversation, or maybe a little bit flirting, she says, with a young woman at a bus stop as they are waiting for the last bus home after a show they had attended. All of a sudden, a young man comes up and he starts yelling at Hannah to get away from his girlfriend, you blankety blank, 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 and now insert one of the most derogatory words for a gay man that you can think of, which I won't now say from the chancel. And this guy accuses Hannah of trying to come on to his girlfriend, and Hannah better get ready for a pounding. And the young woman starts yelling back at him, wait a minute, wait a minute, this isn't a bloke. It's a girl, which turns the entire interaction on its head as the young man starts apologizing profusely, not for the violence he is threatening to rain down on Hannah, but for the mistaking her for a gay man who is hitting on his girlfriend and how sorry he was for the misidentification. It's really hilarious and I'm not doing it any justice right now. <laughs> Another story is her coming out story with her mother. And she recounts her coming out as trying to explain to her mother that she is just a little bit lesbian. <laughs> to which her mother responds, oh, Hannah, why'd you have to tell me that? That's not something I need to know. I mean, what if I told you I was a murderer? Now, that was a roll on the floor moment for me because that was pretty much one of the responses I got when I tried to explain to one of my relatives about what and who I am. So then Hannah makes this 180-degree move and starts to deconstruct the building blocks of a joke and explain what she does in order to make us laugh and why she is so masterful at her craft, and she is. 
What is a joke, she says. A joke is two things, a setup and a punchline. It's essentially a question with a surprise answer. But in Hannah's style of humor, her humor is storytelling. So she says she artificially inseminates a story with tension and then releases our tension by making us laugh. It makes us all feel better. And it makes us feel connected. Set up, tension, and release. That is Hannah Gadsby's Humor Lesson 101. There's two problems in her mind with this brand of comedy and why she says she needs to quit. First, she explains the price she pays for making a career out of self-deprecating humor. Do you know what self-deprecating humor means when it comes from somebody who already exists in the margins, she says? It's not humility. It's humiliation. She says, I put myself down in order to speak, to seek permission to speak. And all of a sudden, as a listener, you realize, I am not in Kansas anymore, and Hannah is going to fling me around like a house caught up in a tornado in The Wizard of Oz. She's going to do some truth-telling about growing up gay, about what it was like to be an adolescent during the 10-year national debate in Tasmania about making homosexuality illegal, about how there was nothing to do with her burgeoning awareness of her sexuality during that time except turn it into self-loathing and shame. Then Hannah returns to some of the stories she just told as jokes with a setup and a punchline and retells them as stories with a beginning, a middle, and an end. She notes that nobody would laugh if she told the truth about her real relationship with her mother, that her mother is more than her mother, that her mother is like her best friend. Notice she says, no one is laughing. There is no tension. There is no release. You have a good relationship with your mother. Hilarious. <laughs> Hannah talks about this beautiful banter she carries on with her mother now about the difficult times that they went through when Hannah was younger and coming out. They tease one another now. Hannah says something like, you know, you made my life very difficult back then when I was a child. And her mother replies, well, I don't think I liked you very much back then. And they both laugh. But one day while shopping at Target, her mom responds to one of Hannah's little quips about having it rough as a kid in a different way. Her mother says, the thing I regret the most is that I raised you as if you were straight. I didn't know how to do anything different. And I am so sorry. I am so sorry. I knew well before you did that your life was going to be so hard. 
And I wanted more than anything in the world for that not to be the case. So I tried to raise you straight. And now I know that I made it worse. I wanted you to change because I knew the world wouldn't. Anna looks at her mom at that moment and asks herself, how did this just happen? How had her mom evolved and Hannah herself had not? The answer in Hannah's mind is that comedy has suspended her in a constant state of adolescence. The way she's been telling her coming out is through jokes, but it's really a story, a whole story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And jokes are just two parts, a beginning and a middle. She says, what I've done by making a joke of my coming out is that I've frozen an incredibly formative experience at its trauma point and sealed it off with jokes. The story became a routine, and through repetition, the joke version fused with my actual memory of what happened. And unfortunately, that joke version was not nearly sophisticated enough to help me understand the damage done to me in reality. You learn from the part of the story you focus on, Hannah says. I need to tell my whole story, not a joke, not a truncated version for a laugh, but a whole story so that I can evolve. The joke we had heard earlier about being mistaken for a man is truncated for a laugh, but in actuality, it was a prelude to a brutal attack by that young man on Hannah. A beating that was so bad she should have gone to the hospital, but she didn't because she was so full of shame and this destructive voice inside her head convincing her that she somehow deserved it. You learn from the part of the story you focus on. So hold on to that, and now I'm going to make my own 180-degree turn. Many of us are in a national dialogue right now about taking our place and making room. You might not define it like this, but I believe the national dialogue around reparations is all about taking our place and making room, the worship theme for this month. So let me parse this out a bit. Reparations is as old as the Old Testament. It's part of our deep national consciousness, even if we don't know it. Ever since the days of George Washington, when he leaves belongings and resources to those he had enslaved as part of his last will and testament, we have understood the necessity of reparations. Reparations is a meaningful financial as well as whole storied response for the theft and plunder of wealth and resources. In the national dialogue, the wealth and resources stole 
from African-American communities specifically, but other communities of color and indigenous folks, by the colonists, by the institutions that grew out of those colonies, by the United States government that benefited businesses, political parties, and white communities. It's a meaningful response to a political, economic, social system of domination and resource redistribution that elevates white people as a group and steals from communities of color, AKA racism and white supremacy. In our national discussion today, reparations is a hornet's nest of who will be paid, how much will they be paid, who will pay. But beyond the practicalities, there is a debate going on about what part of the story we as a nation are gonna focus on. We learn from the part of the story we focus on. So when Senator Mitch McConnell says, I don't think reparations for something that happened 150 years ago when none of us currently living are responsible is a good idea. We've tried to deal with our original sin of slavery by fighting a civil war, by passing landmark civil rights le legislation. We've elected an African-American president. This is one way of telling our story, but it's hardly a whole story with a beginning, a middle, a middle, and maybe a more honest ending. In my estimation, it's telling our national history like a joke, with a setup and a punchline, so that white people can all feel better and the powers that be can maintain the status quo. I don't fault anyone for telling our national history this way. It's the only joke most of us white folks know how to tell, because it's the only joke many of us have been taught. When we as a nation only focus on slavery, the Civil War, and the Civil Rights Movement, then we truncate the story and through repetition of the joke version, fused with what actually happened and is still happening, white people can't grow up and people of color and indigenous folk continue to pay. When Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote The Case for Reparations in 2014, he wanted to deepen the debate and move the subject of reparations from the punchline in Dave Chappelle's stand-up routine to a story we hold with all seriousness in truth and reconciliation. He wanted to focus our storytelling. Coates asks us to imagine a new country Reparations, by which I mean the full acceptance of our collective biography and its consequences, the whole story, is the price we must pay to see ourselves squarely. The recovering alcoholic may well have to live with his illness for the rest of his life, but at least he is not living a drunken lie. Reparations beckons us to reject the intoxication of hubris, meaning excessive pride or self-confidence, and see America as it is. 
the work of fallible humans. Colts and others wants us to move this country from a constant state of adolescence, of being frozen in the trauma points of our history and formative experiences as a nation, and understand that these versions of history, a history with just a setup and a punchline, is not nearly sophisticated enough to help us to understand the damage done to every single one of us in reality. The more I have held on and held racial justice at the center of my thinking and my heart, my being, the more I take my place in my own healing, my own history, my family's healing, and my community's healing. The more I've held racial justice at my center, the more I've noticed other ways in which I've not lived my values. The way my ableism has truly hurt some of the youth with whom I work and are incredibly dear to me. The way my internalized homophobia and gender bias has hurt me and my trans beloveds the weight my ecological footprint has contributed to this planet's sickness. I want to make room. I want to hear and hold whole stories. I may be walking around like a recovering racist for the rest of my life, but at least I will not be living a drunken lie. At its most basic, reparations means mending, taking my place and making room. That calls me to reject the intoxication of hubris and live into that work of mending. Now, I've been thinking a lot about reparations uh, over the course of the year and taking my place when an opportunity arose this past spring Black Lives Unitarian Universalist President Lena Gardner told me about an organization she was pulling together along with several other UU leaders, including Reverend Ashley Haran and Andrea Johnson, to help with monthly student loan payments for 13 black activists across the country, some of whom lived in the Twin Cities. And the initiative was called Stolen Wealth Returns. We talked together about the predatory nature of student loans, particularly in communities of color, the ways that people got stuck in perpetual debt with no way out because you cannot declare bankruptcy when you take out a student loan. The more I investigated on my own, the worse the whole rat's nest smelled. These diabolical loans are everywhere and have been specifically targeted in communities of color who want their piece of the American dream like anybody else does. Many folks find themselves worse off financially than before they got their degree, ravaged by the fine print of variable rates, fixed rates, Stafford loans, and lending instruments that are meant to wring the last bit of wealth out of people who are just trying to do their best. 
So my spouse and I decided to host a house party along with a couple of our dear friends and talk about student loans and this particular effort to ease the debt load of 13 black activists. We invited a passel of friends from our old softball days, most of whom we've known for 40 years. You can say that when you're over 60. <laughs> Math actually works. <laughs> All of us conveners were feeling a little anxious as the gathering appro approached because we'd already had some uncomfortable conversations with some of our friends about the frameworks of racism and how we were seeing the world differently. All we knew was that we wanted to take our place and make room for folks to hear the whole story and perhaps tell their larger story. Uncomfortable, but doable. We are friends, I said to myself. What's the worst that can happen? I'll just say no and leave. But what happened was surprising. Happened was surprising and better than I could have imagined. Yes, there were these difficult questions and hard pushback and graceful rejoinders and deep, deep listening. But ultimately, it was a gathering full of joy and connection. Joy and deep connection. These are the natural outcomes of taking our place and making room. We made the case for reparations and the Stolen Wealth Returns Initiative. No, it is not writing new policies for loaning practices or the least bit global in its reach, but it's a way to make a difference in a few people's lives, and it makes sense to me. Beyond the topic of student loans, we started talking to one another about our own stories of college or no college, family debt and family wealth, growing up working class and poor, and a, a, being a trust fund baby. Recognizing that financing a college degree in our day is light years away from what it requires today. It was all in that room and we had never shared those kind of things with one another before, and we've known each other for 40 years. A case for our little corner of reparations and mending became an opening for deeper connections and a whole lot of joy. We had silently agreed to stand at the gates of hope not the prudent gates of optimism, not the stalwart gates of common sense, not the strident gates of self-righteousness, not the cheerful, flimsy garden gates of eh, everything's going to be all right, but the place of truth-telling about your own soul first, the place of resistance and defiance, the piece of ground from which we saw the world telling one another about our struggle. And we stood there beckoning and calling, telling one another what we saw and asking one another what they saw. Friends, come take your place with me and make room for one another.
It's the just and joyful endeavor of telling whole stories. May it be so, and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming community that finds strength in the diversity of identities of all who find inspiration and comfort here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text FIRSTUNIV, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.